Welcome to California Groundbreakers, a place that sets trends, starts movements, and shakes up how things are done around the world. We're inviting interesting people doing innovative things to sit down and talk with us about how they're asking and answering the big questions facing all Californians. Our goal is to inspire change across the state, one conversation at a time. State Senator Scott Weiner, who represents San Francisco, has made waves since he came to Sacramento in 2016. His efforts to build more housing around public transportation and in wealthy suburbs have made his legislation the most talked about so far this year at the Capitol and in the media. He's also famous for his proposal to keep the bars open till 4 a.m., citing the cultural and economic benefits of nightlife. Last year, he got a bill passed to keep net neutrality protection in California after the FCC repealed those regulations. And now that legislation is the center of a lawsuit by the Justice Department. Scott Weiner compares San Francisco politics to a knife fight in a phone booth and says that getting his start there had made him steely enough to handle politics at the state capitol. Join us at Roostaller as we talk with Senator Scott Weiner about his past, present, and future as a politician, a legislator, and a groundbreaker in California. Hi everyone, welcome to California Groundbreakers. I'm Vanessa Richardson, I'm the Executive Director of Groundbreakers. And tonight we're holding one of our Groundbreakers Q&A interviews, in which we talk with some mighty movers and shakers who are bringing changes to California, making waves, and putting California's capital on the map in bold font. And this evening we're talking with one of the most well-known, or at least much talked about people in the California legislature right now, State Senator Scott Weiner. And he represents the 11th Senate District, which if I, if I uh, say it correctly, it's all of San Francisco, and the northernmost part of San Mateo County, so Daly City, Colma, South San Francisco. Um, and so before, he, before that, he was on the San Francisco Board of Supervisors. I was actually I was not in your district, but I lived in San Francisco then. So I, I was, it was very interesting to see the, a lot of the legislation that he authored. Obviously, a lot in housing, transportation, public parks, and spaces. And I think there were a few really notable, groundbreaking ones that he got passed. Um, one which was making San Francisco the first city in the country to require water recycling in new building developments, housing and commercial. And then also another first was making San Francisco the first city to require fully paid parental leave for new parents after childbirth or adoption, and that applied to both parents. So I think that's about six weeks fully paid parental leave. And then there were some other notable ones. I'm not sure if this was the first, but obviously a, a very big deal was barring, uh, uh, he passed a bill to bar San Francisco from doing business with companies that have a home base in states that forbid civil right protections for lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people. So I think that was a cutting edge one. And then to me, it was very contentious one, surprisingly for me, I thought, banning nudity in public places um, in San Francisco. That got a lot of contention. Although apparently you can still be, you can still be nude in uh, Events like Beta Breakers and... You can still be almost nude anywhere. Almost. Okay. You just, have to, you just have to put a sock on it. That's all you need to do. <laughs> okay. So there are limits to how nude you can be and where. Uh, so now he is state senator. He was elected in 2016, and he has kept on getting attention for the legislation he's proposing. We can't talk a lot about all the bills that he's done, but definitely there's a few that we will ask him about. Most recently, Senate Bill 50. 
Um, there's also a bill to propose keeping bars and clubs in certain parts of California open till 4 a.m. I think Jerry Brown shot it down when he was governor, but you brought it back. And uh, let's see, I, I, I was just looking at your website. I saw that you authored or co-authored as of this, uh, uh, as of this session, started in January, 28 bills. And there's a wide range. Um, legislation to eliminate surprise hospital emergency room bills and establishing a state tax to reduce wealth inequality. One, to let more people invest in and generate their own renewable energy. Um, increase access to HIV prevention medication. Um, ensure equal rights and protections to the incarcerated transgender individuals. And I'm a scuba diver, so I loved the uh, improving and protecting the health of California's ocean and coastal communities. So there's a wide range. Why I brought him here to this event, which I thought it'd be so interesting to talk with him, is because I just read a lot of quotes uh, about you, not just in local papers, but nationwide. And I love, well, I personally like how you are really shaking a lot of people up in the state, sometimes irritating and annoying them with a few for bills. So I thought this guy is definitely a groundbreaker. He's definitely shaking people uh, up and you're definitely one to watch. So we're here to talk with Scott, if I may call you Scott, about some of this hot topic legislation and your take on politics in the Capitol and, and on doing groundbreaking public policy in California. Quickly though, before we uh, start in on the questions, I do want to give a few special thanks to people who helped make this event possible tonight. We're holding this event at Roostaller uh, Tap Room in downtown San Francisco, so thanks to the Roostaller team, J.E. Pena, the owner, uh, Sierra Calso, who is our right-hand person helping manage this event, thank you. To our audio engineer, uh, uh, Caleb Clark from Kickstart Audio and his right-hand person, Nate Graham, thank you for recording the podcast. Caitlin Voorhees at the uh, Senator's office for helping uh, get the Senator here on time. Of course, to our panelists here, thank you, Senator. I know it's a busy schedule for you, so I appreciate it. Last but not least to you, the audience, uh, for taking time out of your busy schedule to come here and talk. So it'll be 30 minutes more or less of Q&A from me and then 30 minutes from the audience at the mic. So um, I gave kind of the rundown on, on what you're doing. I wanted to ask you a couple questions just to kick off the podcast so everyone can get adjusted to your voice. Um, first off, I wanted to know what committees you chair and sit on right now, because it feels like every assembly person and senate's on a few committees, and, um, and just ones that you chair. And also, summer break starts, I guess, next Friday, July 12th, for the, for the uh, legislators. So I was just wondering what your summer vacation plans are, if any until you come back. Great, well thank you for having me here uh, this evening. Um, and, uh, and this is also a great, a great bar to be in, so uh, thank you for having me. Um, so uh, in, in the Senate, we, uh, we sit on more committees than assembly members just because there are uh, fewer of us. And so sometimes we sit on too many committees. Uh, so I sit on a total of, uh, seven committees. Um, I chair the Senate Housing Committee, and then I sit on uh, the following committees on the uh, Energy Committee, on the Public Safety Committee, the Human Services Committee, um, the Governance and Finance Committee, the Governmental Organization Committee, and then the uh, Joint Legislative Audit Committee. So it's a lot of committees. Is that is seven an average number, or is that a little more, a little less than average? Do you know? Uh, I think it is uh, above average. I don't know if that's a reward or a punishment. Um, uh, I have more committees this year than I had last year. 
my, my Republican colleagues tend to have a ton of committees because there are fewer and fewer of them, and so they have to fill in on more on more committees. So I, I, I feel sorry for the ones that have like eight or nine committees that they sit on. And then summer break, any summer plans? I do. We're, we're on recess from mid-July to mid-August. I am actually taking the, my first two-week vacation in 10 years since I've been in elected office. I used to take them, and then once I got elected, I never took more than a week. Um, so I, I'm, I have a friend who is spending some time in uh, Denmark, uh, in Copenhagen, so I'm going to visit him, and then we're going to travel to a few other places. Uh, d uh, Denmark, Copenhagen is beautiful, and you're going to have a great time, so enjoy it. Okay, so I, I always like to start with a little bit of background information. We get to know the person behind the 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 seat. And so I wanted you, you know, the typical describe your childhood, but when I was reading up on you, I thought it was interesting, you know, when you mentioned your first experience with politics, it I read that it involved a debate on church versus state in junior high. So that sounds like it was a very contentious start uh, to a political career at an early age. Uh, yeah, so my family is not a political family. My, I come from a family of, uh, of uh, teachers and uh, healthcare professionals. And so uh, my father uh, is now retired, but uh, he was a uh, practicing optometrist, and my mother uh, ran the office. Uh, and they were very politically aware, but not really involved. And I started as a teenager becoming involved. And then when I was in 11th grade, uh, our at our high school graduation in New Jersey, there was a, um, the benediction or the prayer that was, it was super, super Christian prayer. Um, and uh, there were people, myself included, who were concerned, I'm Jewish. We were, you know, it was one of two Jewish kids in a class of 550. Uh, and we pushed back and said, hey, this shouldn't happen. This is not, this is a public school. And so they uh, convened like a working group to talk about it, and I was part of that. And it became super contentious and super uh, anti-Semitic really quickly. And uh, and someone at one point threatened to burn a cross on my lawn, and it was like sort of crazy like that. Uh, and uh, I don't think much changed, but we got to process everything. Did that get your? interest in politics or maybe making that a career started or was that just not what you were thinking at that time in 11th grade? Um, I knew I had an interest in politics. I had no idea if I would ever be formally involved. Uh, I think as uh, when you're Jewish or when you're uh, gay, which I uh, also am, I think politics becomes very um, personal because politics is about at times whether you get to like exist or not exist. And we've seen that through history uh, with a lot of different communities that politics is really about life and death uh, for people. Um, so I, I early on learned uh, that, uh, you know, especially growing up during the uh, Reagan uh, administration in the 80s when uh, HIV was being ignored and, uh, and just so many bad things were happening, I think I learned uh, that you had to be engaged. And I was going to ask you about that. You went to Duke University, and I read that you came out during your junior year. Uh, was it an easy thing to come out uh, uh, publicly, whatever? You know, I know we're. this is a very uh, 
I wanted to ask this question because it's such an uh, important year, the 50th anniversary of Stonewall, um, Gay Pride Month. And so when I read that, I know that was, uh, what, at least 20, 25 years ago. So I was wondering when coming out then compared to how things stand now, was that a big deal? Was it not such a big deal? I mean, Duke, I'm not sure. Wanted yeah, to ask. Uh, actually next year will be uh, 30 years since my coming out. It's, uh, you, you, the aging process is fast. It goes by fast. Um, so I came out in uh, my uh, the beginning of my junior year. Or I started coming out at the beginning of my junior year of college in 1990. Um, I told my sister first, and uh, I and then I I was in a fraternity, and uh, I was the treasurer of my fraternity, and I was in a few months going to planning to run for president of the fraternity, and I thought you know I can never fully come out, I can't tell my fraternity brothers because you know that I, I won't be president, they'll reject me. Uh, and then as anyone who has come out knows, once you start telling a few people, it becomes like this like pull that you need to tell more and more and more people. Uh, and so as I told more people, after a couple months, I was like, I need to tell my fraternity brothers. And so we had this thing at the end of our weekly Sunday night meeting um, where we would stand in a circle and you could say whatever you wanted, whatever you needed to say. And so we all stood in a circle um, and I, when it came to me, I came out to my fraternity brothers. And it was really scary. I didn't know what to expect. Again, this is 1990. It's not 2019 uh, in North Carolina. And um, they all uh, hugged me at the end and embraced me and a month or two later elected me president. So. Uh, it was, um, uh, that was good. And then a few months after that, I told my parents who were very supportive and uh, I had a good coming out experience overall. That's great. And then uh, I'm not sure if you moved immediately to San Francisco, but you did move to San Francisco in the 90s. What was the decision to move? And then also, I guess you moved, you had a job in a private law firm, then you ended up working for the city attorney's office. What made you decide to do that too? So the move to San Francisco and then the move from a private law firm to public. Yeah, I, um, so after college, I, I spent a year in South America and Chile, and then I went to law school. And I always assumed I would go back to where I grew up, which is Philadelphia area. I thought I would go back to Philadelphia. And I spent a summer during law school working at a law firm in Philly, and I thought I would definitely end up there. Uh, and then I said, you know, you should try out another city. And San Francisco was the only city that really called to me, I think, as a gay man. Uh, and so I spent a summer there and fell in love with it. And it was still a struggle because I didn't want to be far from my family, but I ultimately, my, ultimately my gut told me to go to San Francisco. And I, I went there and ended, there, ended up there in 97. Um, spent five years at a law firm. Uh, and then I, you know, the law firm, I had a great experience there um, and it was uh, good mentoring uh, and all that, but I um, decided I really wanted to do jury trials. I wanted to be in court. I wanted to handle my own cases and at big law firms, it's hard to do that. So that's why I switched over to the city attorney's office and spent almost a decade there. And then the board of supervisors, I think that was definitely okay, I'm going to get into politics. So what was the situation, event, moment that made you decide I'm going to run for office and, and a seat on the board of supervisors? Um, I think 
Uh, for most people, uh, running for office is a process. I mean, there are some people who, when they're very young, are like, I'm running for office, period, and they always know it. Um, I wasn't that person. Even though I was always on again, off again, involved in politics, um, I, I never knew if I would run for office because I knew that it would be a, a life-changing thing for better and for worse. Uh, and so I volunteered on many campaigns in San Francisco over many years. Um, I did a lot of uh, community work uh, in the LGBT community in addition to practicing law. And, um, uh, you know, over time, it just was a gradual thing. And, and with term limits, uh, which are problematic in many ways, but one of the things about term limits is you know when a seat is coming open years in advance. It's not like a surprise. And so I knew that the supervisorial seat where I lived in the Castro and surrounding neighborhoods was going to uh, uh, be a, open in a, few, in a few years. And people were encouraging me to look at it. And I ultimately just decided it made, it made sense. And it was, a, it was not a, an epiphany. It just sort of gradually coalesced over time. And I think when you were there, you know, I, I was doing my research, but the, the things that I noticed that while you were there that came up and seemed to make you stand out in many ways, I guess, on the board were um, the, there was one chronic, San Francisco Chronicle article that highlighted the fact that everyone they, they quoted about you said they called you hardworking. You were very dedicated, very, you just were hardworking and just, um, um, had a had a mission. Uh, you were also noted for surpassing uh, the record for putting forward the most legislation of any supervisor. And I think there was another story there about um, sometimes when you made when you put legislation to, uh, forward, you did it. Maybe you ruffled some feathers. Uh, although the personal the personal relationships you had were were solid, but maybe professional wise or political wise, it was ruffling some feathers. But your your reply was, well, there are times when you introduce legislation that you ruffle some feathers. If you don't, you aren't doing your job. So based on that, you know, hardworking, you know, introducing a lot of legislation, um, having that, you know. I'm gonna I'm gonna do this I'm gonna do my job even if it means ruffling some feathers how how do you view your experience as a supervisor in terms of preparing you for going for the senator position I mean were are there ways that that really made it easier for you to step into this role does that make sense well um, yes uh, so uh, first of all uh, San Francisco politics is a as a unique thing um, it's not a coincidence that San Francisco politics produces people like Nancy Pelosi and Diane Feinstein and Kamala Harris and Gavin Newsom and Willie Brown and John Burton and Jackie Spear and so on and so forth that's not a coincidence uh, it is a rough and tumble Kind of politics. Uh, we, um, you know, my my uh, colleague, Assemblymember David Chu, who represents uh, my my district, he's my Assemblymember. He likes to refer to San Francisco politics as a knife fight in a phone booth, uh, and uh, and so it is. It's really rough, and if you are able to survive and and do well in that environment, um, you you're, you might have a, a future in other places, and. Um, and I also am of the view, uh, you know, when you go into public service and elected office, um, you're, uh, you know, potentially, you know, you could be making a lot of more money doing other things. You could have more of a personal life. You have, you know, just there, you give up a lot. Uh, and in term with term limits, uh, you have a shelf life. 
And so you got to get in and do things. And there's a big pressure in elected life not to do anything or to do small things, not to make people upset. It can be, it's really hard when people start coming at you and saying horrible things about you and, you know, cyber stalking you or, um, you know, practically burning you in effigy. Um, it's really hard. Uh, and so you have to have the sort of the fortitude to say, you know what, I understand people are mad, but we have a problem, we have to solve it, and we need to stop you know, nibbling around the edges. So that's what I learned uh, in San Francisco politics, and I think it did, I think it has served me well uh, in the legislature. It's a very different environment here. Uh, it is um, dramatically more complicated uh, than local government, even in San Francisco, uh, and uh, it's such a diverse state in all respects, uh, ethnically, but also politically, geographically, uh, and uh, it's, it's a challenge, but it's a rewarding challenge. And then, yes, what do you, what do you decide to focus on? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a citizen. I, I do not know that much about how the legislative process works at the Capitol. But in terms of these bills that I mentioned in the intro, you know, it's very wide ranging, but obviously housing is a focus. The clubs, you know, there's ones that you're, I guess, known for. But w when you come in uh, as a um, senator in 2016, what do you decide to focus on? Or is focus something that you... Um, is that not an issue? Uh, what topics you decided to take on, or does it really depend on your district and what they're asking you to do? You know, does that make sense? Yeah, I think different legislators do it differently. There are some things, depending on your district, that you, you know, representing X area, you need to focus on that. Um, <clears throat> it's also very personal for people. Right, some people who might be really passionate, you know, about say addiction because they've had people in their lives who have who have struggled with it. Um, for me, uh, housing and homelessness um, are always at the top of the list um, be because it's it, it's the top issue set of issues facing California and San Francisco was about 10 years ahead of the rest of the state and going off the cliff where no one can afford housing and we see a growing homeless population and people being pushed out of the city entirely. So in San Francisco, housing is such a huge issue uh, that I would be completely derelict if I weren't trying to, to push the envelope on it. But also, you know, for me as a, as a gay man and representing San Francisco, um, I have a solemn responsibility to fight like a dog uh, for LGBT people uh, and for people living with HIV. Uh, and so that is always, always a, a super high priority for me. And one of the um, one of the great things about my my predecessor, Senator Mark Leno, uh, when he was terming out, and I had just been elected, and he was handing the baton to me, he said something to me that's always stuck with me. He said, "Scott, the beauty of representing San Francisco in the legislature is that it gives you the space to push the envelope. Um, you're, and, and in fact, your constituents demand." that you push the envelope. So representing San Francisco, for example, you know, we have a broken criminal justice system where we are incarcerating way too many people for too long. It's a huge drain on public dollars. It, just, it tears apart families and communities and it doesn't make us safer and we have to dramatically reform it. But in many parts of the state, it's hard to push the envelope on criminal justice reform because you get accused of being like soft on crime. If you represent a place like San Francisco or Oakland, uh, you can push the envelope and your constituents want you to push the envelope to, to try to reform sentencing and reform the sex offender registry and, and do all these things that are not sexy and that people will spit at you for doing, uh, but need to be done. 
So, okay, now the question's about housing. Um, for your the first two years, uh, 17 and 18, um, just a refresher on highlights, lowlights, what you got past, uh, just the housing in the first two years that uh, you want to, that sure. was like the refresher. Well, I, I feel uh, fortunate that when I came, when I was running for Senate, um, some of my supporters in San Francisco were like, well, of course we want you to, the best for you, but we don't really want you to win because we don't want you to leave the Board of Supervisors because you can't do anything about housing in, at the state level. You have to do it all locally. And they were, I knew they were wrong. Uh, but so when, once I won, I wanted to prove them wrong. Uh, and fortunately, the timing was good because historically the state has taken a very weak, limited role in housing, uh, which is bizarre because the state takes an active role in public education and healthcare and all these other critical issues. Housing is so important, but we've always viewed the state as having like no real role. It's just a local thing, which is a recipe for disaster if you just let cities do whatever they want because it's always going to be no. Um, and so not always there are cities that try to do the right thing, but um, many cities that don't. Uh, for a few years before I got there, there was growing momentum to do more. Uh, and so I got there uh, right a few months after the governor, Governor Brown, proposed a dramatic streamlining bill uh, for housing to make it much faster to build housing. And it fell apart really quickly. Um, and so I got there and I immediately took what the governor had done and I started reframing it and, and refining it to make it you know, more palatable to some of the groups that opposed it. Uh, and that was Senate Bill 35 and we got it passed. And we got it passed along with a number of other aggressive bills in 2017, a really robust housing package. And that package, I think, really laid the foundation that the legislature could do big things on housing and we could all work together. And it forged relationships among legislators who were committed to this. Last year was a little bit of a lull in 2018. Uh, we did some more, some less sexy, less high profile bills. And, but I, except for, I of course introduced our zoning reform bill, which was now SB 50, it was SB 827 last year. That bill, um, we knew it would be controversial. Uh, we didn't realize how explosive it would be and how much international, not just national or state, but international attention it would get. Um, it actually, it, it crashed and burned after 90 days, but it started the conversation uh, that led uh, to SB 50 and, and to the work we're doing in 2019. So yes, I wanna, I want to uh, lead into that um, or set the scene, I guess, in a way, uh, in an interesting article I found on Curbed San Francisco from a, actually yesterday, uh, that sets the scene, hopefully, so for you to talk about SB 50. So here's the, here's how it starts. So in the first half of 2019, members of the California legislature introduced roughly 200 bills that addressed the state's worsening housing crisis. But by the end of May, most of them have been nixed by the Byzantine nature of California politics. And I love it, the, all, these, all these references. When the May deadline for floor votes on new, new legislation passed, uh, Curbed LA, that's the other, the, the other website uh, about housing, referred to it as the May massacre and the worst month in California's housing policy history. And Los Angeles Times writer Liam Dillon, who writes a lot about housing, calls it a bloodbath for California housing. And then someone who spoke to the reporter for Curbed San Francisco, a Bay Area lawmaker's aide, referencing one of Game of Thrones' bloodiest scenes referred to the session as a red wedding. I was wondering if any of your aides may have said that. 
I don't think I don't think those were mine. They they had other choice words. <laughs> but yes, yeah, so obviously one of the casualties was uh, SB fifty, or maybe a temporary casualty. But it just sounds like all these expectations, like something's going to happen, but a lot of it did not. And one of the casualties was SB fifty. So I wanted you to just just give us a a, a, brief, a brief primer on what SB fifty covered and what happened. So just, you know, the context is really, uh, it's severe. We have a two and a half to three and a half million home deficit. It's massive. Uh, it's resulted from uh, 50 years of terrible housing policy where we've systematically banned uh, any, all forms of housing other than single family homes in a large majority of California. Uh, and we've basically made it mathematically impossible to build enough housing uh, anywhere near jobs and transit. And so we have a housing shortage. And when we do build housing, we tend we build it further and further away from job centers. So we build sprawl. We cover up farmland and we build in uh, wildfire zones. Almost half of new housing in California in the last 30 years is in wildfire zones. And we see the results in terms of people being pushed out and super commuters and homelessness and so on and so forth. Uh, and so there's a growing awareness that we have to make fundamental change and the state has to start setting clear rules and standards. But that is painful because that's, we've never done it that way before. It's always been the cities get to decide their zoning and, how to, and whether they approve projects. And so when we start saying, hey, we want to rebalance this and have the state take a greater role, you have a, a lot of pushback. And so what happened this year with a lot of these bills is you know we we made I mean, more progress than you would expect. I mean, a bill like SB fifty, which is overriding significantly local zoning and saying we know your town has always been only single family homes. Guess what? No more. People can build apartment buildings there now. This is a a, a really radical departure from how we've traditionally done it, and so it's not surprising there was pushback. But the fact that that bill got out of got almost unanimous bipartisan votes, votes in two different committees, and we would have had the votes on the Senate floor had one chair not stalled it. Um, it shows how things have shifted. The fact that a rent control measure, they don't call it rent control, but it is a rent, a rent cap measure, passed out of the full assembly, these things would have been unthinkable even three or four years ago. So we are seeing, a, I think, a lot of progress and momentum, but that doesn't mean that everything, you know, it, all the pieces are there yet. I think it is, it is happening. It, it will happen. Um, and SB 50, it's a really simple notion that we need to legalize more housing near where the jobs are, near public transit. If we're going to build three and a half million new homes as the governor has committed, then the last thing we need is three and a half million homes as sprawl. We need to focus them near the jobs and transit, and that means allowing more density. Uh, and that's what the bill is about. And I think shortly after this one person um, postponed the S SB 50, I read that you went to a, I don't know, town hall or a town meeting in Palo Alto, which is one of the areas that pushes back a lot on, well, let's just be blunt, they have a lot of uh, NIMBYs there. And so I just thought, I wonder how that experience was. Maybe you're used to it, going in and talking to people who are, you know, not in my backyards. But maybe just um, for those who, for the people who say, I don't know if it's a generational thing, socioeconomics, uh, district, but are there 
it's just interesting to me how we're such a progressive state, we want this, but then when it comes to housing, NIMBY is a very strong force. And I guess that's that, you know, we're taking a local control away from our community. Uh, property values are hit, you know. Um, what do you what do you tell them? How, how can, uh, where do you think the breach can be bridged when it comes to, quote, unquote, NIMBYs who are well, concerned? We are, California in many ways is a very progressive state except around housing. Uh, and uh, frankly, California has been for a long time a very conservative state on housing, not wanting any change. And you have a lot of people who are otherwise very, very progressive who convince themselves that it is progressive to oppose new housing, that you're, really, you're just fighting developers. Of course, who else is going to build housing? People don't build their own homes anymore for the most part. It's a developer, of course. But it is, and I think one of the uh, things we're really trying to convey to people is it is not progressive to oppose new housing. That is very conservative. The good thing is the people of California are way ahead of elected officials. When you poll housing, it's not controversial. In fact, SB 50 in the last few months has been polled statewide three times with very brutally honest polling questions, not sugarcoating it at all. Um, and it has polled the support somewhere either 61, 62, or 66% support statewide. Um, strong support in every region of the state. Strong support among every demographic. Strongest among renters, like 70%. But even majority support among homeowners. Among every racial group, strongest among communities of color, but even among uh, white people, uh, strong, stronger than you would think. Stronger, Strongest among young people, but even strong among people 55 and older, so it's not controversial. So going down to Palo Alto, you know, Palo Alto has a reputation because they have this like loudmouth mayor who says all sorts of crazy, ridiculous things. And I don't say that lately, he's over the top. And so people assume that that represents Palo Alto. It doesn't. There are a lot of people in Palo Alto who totally, totally get it. And until recently, Palo Alto had a very pro-housing city council. It flipped recently. Uh, and so going down there, it was I, I was really um, worried because it was game four of the NBA championships. And, and when that got scheduled, I'm like, oh, God, no one's I'm going to have like five people at this town hall. There were like hundreds of people there um, because they care about not necessarily because of me, but, but they care about housing. And there were people there who were opponents, but there were an enormous number of supporters and people who get it. But it's interesting, you know, uh, you were saying so many support, but it, it seemed like According to this curbed San Francisco story, after all that work, a single senator unilaterally quashed the bill. And so Senator Anthony Portentino, who put it into stasis. Um, why? Um, why this guy? I mean, what's... Well, the, the way that we have an odd... The, legis the California legislature, and I assume other legislatures are probably the same way, it's designed to make it really, really hard to pass any bill, even especially hard ones. Depending on uh, what the bill is and what subjects it covers, your bill, if you're lucky in terms of the two houses, you, you might only, rarely you'll do two committees. Um, often it can be, more commonly, it'll be somewhere between four and, and six or even eight committees that see your bill in the two houses. Any one of those committees can kill your bill, can mutilate your bill, can chop it down to nothing, can, or, you know, 
can really do a number on it. So it's really an obstacle course and you have to be very focused in trying to keep your bill going. And there are chairs of committees who are very reasonable and agree with you. There are um, chairs of committees who are, um, are oppositional to what you're trying to do. And so it can be very, very, very hard. Here, um, the, and the, the other piece of this is that we have in each house the Appropriations Committee, which is like the final stop before you go to a full vote of either the Senate or the Assembly. And the appropriation, the chair of the Appropriations Committee in both houses is a very powerful position uh, that can uh, unilaterally kill bills or delay them. And that's what happened here. Senator Portantino was appointed chair of the Appropriations Committee. It's a very, very powerful uh, position. And he made a unilateral decision to uh, to make it a two-year bill, which delays it till January. He could have killed it. Uh, at least he didn't do that. Um, and you know, he, he and I just have strong differences on housing. Uh, he um, you know, represents a district that you know, I, I think he believes is really opposed to new development or the state having any role. I don't, you know, I think there are plenty of people in his district who are supportive of what we're doing. Yeah, it's not a very dense housing. Yeah, but parts of it are you have a city of Glendale in his district that's, that's built a ton of housing. In Southern County. Right? So you have, it, it's a mix. Um, but he, um, I think, you know, thought he was representing his district and, uh, and he made that choice. I strongly disagree with it. I think he made very much the wrong decision, uh, but it is what it is and you move forward. So I'd like to open up the, the floor to questions from the audience. We have our human mic stand, Brady Comerford, if he can stand up and if you wanna line up by the stairs and start asking questions, uh, we'll take them. So we already have uh, a gentleman with a question. Uh, thank you, Vanessa, and uh, thank you, Senator Weiner, for uh, attending tonight at Roostaller in downtown Sacramento. Thank you for that promo. Yes. Um, my question, along the lines of groundbreaking uh, legislation and stuff you've been involved with, but a little historical background. S then Senators Torlakson and O'Connell passed groundbreaking legislation that lowered the voter threshold to 55% for local school districts to pass school bonds. In the last two-year legislative session, you had introduced a bill, I believe it was SCA 6, which was attempting to lower the voter threshold on transportation. I believe that bill either was held or, or died, but this legislative session, it sounds like a similar measure, ACA1 by Aguiar Curry, dealing with infrastructure and housing is uh, on the two-year session uh, f and is focusing also on voter threshold for 55%. Where are you at the moment I, on either of the two recent uh, constitutional amendments and which of the two do we see as Californians looking to make the most uh, progress today? So in California, um, we've made it exceptionally hard for local governments to fund basic services, whether infrastructure or schools or 
police or fire or libraries or what have you. Uh, and we uh, uh, capped property taxes with Prop 13 and then said that city councils or boards of supervisors cannot raise taxes on their own. They have to go to the voters. And uh, typically, you have to often get a two-thirds vote for a bond, for a parcel tax, or any kind of tax that is earmarked funds for specific purposes. Uh, so it's this very high two-thirds threshold. Uh, and as you noted, uh, Five or ten years ago, ten years ago, I think the voters um, changed the constitution to say that school bonds could be passed with 55 uh, percent. So I did author a constitutional amendment two years ago to lower the threshold to 55 percent for transportation uh, infrastructure measures. Uh, that bill was uh, was killed in the appropriations committee. Uh, uh, the leadership, I guess, did not want members voting on it. Tax issues are very sensitive. And then this year, there is a broader uh, constitutional amendment to lower it to 55% for all infrastructure or housing, which I'm a co-author of it. I support it. Uh, I think it has um, a shot. It's going to be really, really hard because you have to get a two-thirds vote in both houses of the legislature. And you have all the anti-tax groups saying that if you vote for that, that means you're against Prop 13. So there are members who are hesitant. So I'm hoping we can put it on the ballot and make it a little easier for cities and counties to fund themselves. All right, next question at the mic. Hey, Senator, how you doing? Uh, like your policies on the housing, so that's where I'm going for it, the housing as well. So with the redevelopment, oh, fun fact, Sacramento has built more single-family homes uh, north of L.A. since 2012, I believe, or 2014. So with that being said, and there were, uh, millennials, as probably a lot of people in here, maybe a lot not, uh, there's a lot of redevelopment that's going on. Most of the redevelopment is apartments in urban areas. There's not a lot of actual condos or uh, places you can buy. Now, I was talking to a redeveloper from LDK who's doing the rail yards. They're putting up six 10,000-unit apartment complexes. None of them you can buy with the density passing SB 50. And um, when, if, when that passes, let's hope, when that comes, there will be another problem where you can't really buy a home. You can only rent. So how do you – and uh, I know I'm going a long way. But anyway, how do you combat that and how do you work bipartisan to also pass your rent control and your actual redevelopment so that it doesn't – eliminate people who make under 50 grand or 60 grand to be able to rent in nice urban areas or at least buy a home? Well, I, I think um, when it comes to multi-unit development, like for, in terms of rentals versus condos, so renting versus owning, um, my understanding is that that is very cyclical depending on where the economy is um, in terms of whether developers want to build rentals or condos for sale. And so I, I think it tend, there, there are periods where it very much veers towards rentals and periods where it very much veers towards uh, condos. Uh, and I think both are important. We want to have ownership opportunities. But, uh, you know, 40% of Californians are renters. And uh, I, don't, I, I think it's fine for people to rent or own. And we have to make sure we have enough housing stock uh, for, for both. Uh, so I... Um, I don't see that dynamic uh, really uh, changing. Uh, we are uh, trying to make sure that lower income people can stay in cities because, of course, uh, starting in the, the 30s or 40s and accelerating, a lot of uh, middle and upper income people were leaving uh, cities. Uh, and so it became, 
it was more affordable for lower income people. Over the last 30, 40 years, that's been re reversing because cities are amazing places and more people want to be in cities for many reasons. And that has created a lot of pressure on housing costs, of course, and it's pushing low income people out. And so we need to make sure that we're uh, investing in below market rate uh, subsidized units, that we have good inclusionary housing uh, policies. Uh, and we do have to have um, uh, renter protections, which most the vast majority of renters in California have essentially have almost no real protections. They can be evicted. They can have their rent just dramatically increased overnight. Uh, and uh, that doesn't work. We have to have some sort of reasonable protections in place. I have a follow-up question actually about that because uh, affordable housing is obviously something people want to build. And it might not just be a matter of building more housing, but I, I think there is the the four letter word or four letter acronym CEQA. We we did a discussion on the California Environmental Quality Act a couple years ago this time, and how that act that was passed I guess 40, 50 years ago maybe something like that has been a boon or a bane, I guess, depending on how you look at it, in terms of housing being built. And I guess there's always some discussion about, should CEQA be reformed? Should it be uh, scaled back? It, it seems to be a, an issue when it comes to building. So what's your take on CEQA, the California Environmental Quality Act? And is there talk, serious talk um, in, the in the legislature about how can it be amended, or is it just you know, like Prop 13, it's, you're, you can't just, you can't touch it. Um, yeah, so CEQA was passed, I think it was 1970. Uh, Ronald Reagan signed it into law when he was governor. Um, and CEQA serves a very important purpose. It was passed to say that when you're doing, um, you know, projects, like if you're going to build a bridge or a dam or something that really has potential environmental impacts, you should analyze those impacts to inform the decision on whether to do it. It's a, it's a very important law. Um, over time, it has grown through judicial interpretation to apply to a lot of things that I don't think it was originally intended to apply to. So, uh, and, and it empowers people to delay, stall, uh, kill projects, sue, uh, and, and a lot of times, not, or I should say there are times when it uh, delays or kills environmentally friendly projects like infill housing or public transportation expansions. Uh, and that's not to say that CEQA, we, you know, people sometimes put a lot of blame on CEQA that is, should be spread around to a lot of different things. CEQA is just one piece of the puzzle. Uh, and, um, and, and we do need to have more streamlining to get housing built more quickly and we've actually passed a number of pieces of legislation to do that but we need to do more um, the challenge is that you, you have to work with um, with labor and with the environmental community to do it you can't just shove it down people's throats uh, and that makes it longer and harder but it's really i think the only way uh, to do it uh, but we do need to sequel should not be making it harder to build environmentally friendly housing Next question in the mic. Okay. I think I'm going to take over duties for a minute here. Um, but uh, I, kinda, I have sort of two questions because um, you touched on both CEQA uh, and Prop 13. And I think we've seen bills like SB, I think it's 743, which changes 
um, the transportation metric from uh, level of service to vehicle miles traveled and should help um, uh, developers be able to, to sort of uh, make better decisions and, 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 and build a little bit easier. Um, and I kind of put SB50 in that that camp, and I was really, really pulling for you, man. <laughs> um, I was pretty sad to see what happened. But um, I guess uh, both of those things have been met with, they, they met with a lot of um, uh, resistance. And I wanted to know sort of your stance or, or how you sort of explain to people who would call something like SB50 a gentrification bill or a pro-gentrification bill. How do you sort of respond to that and, and hand, like what's your response to that and how do you debunk sort of that thinking? Um, well, the first part of what you were saying in terms of level of service and so forth. Yeah, give um, us a little primer on that. What is that? Yeah, so it's about when, when you do analysis like traffic analysis for a development do you it i think typically it's okay how much extra traffic is there going to be and uh, do you look at how many vehicles what's the vehicle throughput and what's the speed of individual vehicles moving along and it was very this car focused thing so okay it's going to be harder for there, there's going to be more cars um on the street it's going to be slower for those cars as opposed to um, looking at overall uh, vehicle miles traveled, if you have more housing in a environment in a sustainable area near jobs, near transit, for example, um, fewer people are going to drive um, in terms of, or they're going to drive shorter distances. So looking at the overall impact instead of like, are there going to be more cars stopped at this traffic light at this moment of time? It's also a change that is really important. Um, looking at the number of people moving through an intersection, not the number of cars. So if you have one bus that has 50 people on it, you know, you can't count that just as the same as a car that has one or two people in it. And so there are different ways of analyzing it to, to look at the more real impact. In terms of gentrification and, S and SP50, so, you know, we, we got to, people, I get it that people are concerned if there's new housing that's like, new and shiny and you know more uh, people with with higher incomes moving into a community it can create gentrification and and potentially push people out especially if you don't have renter protections or demolition controls um, but we have to be real that people have been getting pushed out of cities where not very much housing has been built what causes displacement and gentrification is not having enough housing so that the costs go up and people get pushed out. And so you look at all sorts of areas like in San Francisco in the Bay Area where we were going through years of building very little new housing and housing costs were exploding and people were getting evicted and pushed out. That is what causes gentrification and displacement, um, not building new housing. Building new housing relieves the pressure that pushes people out. You have to do it in a thoughtful way though. And so in SB 50, we actually, there were groups that opposed the previous version of it that are now neutral or supportive of the bill because we put some very, we put the, the strongest protections in SB 50 for renters that exist under state law. Very strong renter protections. We put affordability requirements uh, in the bill. Um, we, uh, we, you know, and, the, what's most impacted by SB 50 are areas zoned for single-family homes. Um, and 
I don't know very many low-income people who can afford to buy a single-family home in most parts of California anymore. Uh, so that's what's being upzoned. Single areas where you're only allowed to build a single-family home, which means in San Francisco, the average single-family home sells for $2 million. Now in Palo Alto, it's like $3 million. So the, the, the idea that changing single-family home zoning to multi-unit is causing displacement or gentrification, uh, I think, you know, it, I don't agree with that. Uh, so, but we are working very hard with the uh, groups that represent and advocate for renters uh, and against displacement. Uh, and then uh, the other question I have uh, is surrounding, um, so Prop 13 has uh, long been considered sort of this anathema, like thir third rail, can't touch it, don't mess with it. Um, but I think a lot of folks don't, or maybe, I don't know, a lot of folks um, haven't seen the piece about uh, the closure of redevelopment agencies in 2012 and sort of seeing that money that that money dry up um, and the the link between that and um, the the decrease in affordable housing being built um, and a lot of uh, the problem at, at least the, as I see it is that um, because the way prop 13 was structured it eliminated uh, the ability for um, uh, property taxes to be raised on both residential and commercial properties and now we're looking at a situation where it may be possible to do sort of what's called a split roll and then and tax um, commercial properties at a much higher rate or an appropriate rate um, for against their market value um, where do you sort of stand on that and so what are the um, odds that that we can see something like a split roll help bring back Redevelopment agencies that are that probably should be more, you know, I guess they closed because they weren't regulated well. Um, but what do you think the the situation is sort of on that front, and and how do you see that unfolding? Yes, and I feel like we have talked about how split rule may be on the uh, a proposition on the ballot for twenty twenty. There's talk about that. So I think those are two different things. There's redevelopment and then Prop 13. Redevelopment um, was a program that existed in California for a long time where cities could set up a redevelopment agency, declare certain areas part of that um, redevelopment agency, and then uh, use different kinds of tax increment financing for the property taxes that will be generated uh, from development there to bond against it and start and pay for things like affordable housing and infrastructure up front. Uh, the legislature and the governor killed off redevelopment in 2011 during the recession because redevelopment does take money from the general fund of cities, from, you know, potentially from schools or other needs. And so it was always a battle. Uh, and I do think that there is momentum to bring back a form of redevelopment to make it easier for cities to fund affordable housing. I don't know where the governor stands on it, so I don't know if it's going to happen. In terms of um, Prop 13, when Prop 13 was passed, um, it, there was a, uh, I mean, the, the proponents of Prop 13 um, were uh, not honest with the voters. And there were, there was, we had a, a limited problem of property taxes going up on homeowners who were of limited means. Uh, and it's perfectly reasonable to advocate for, you know, you, you shouldn't be able to have unlimited property tax increases and people need to have certainty about their property taxes. And, you know, people of, on fixed incomes, people who are not wealthy, should not have spikes in their property taxes. 
And so it was sold as we're going to make sure that your property taxes don't spike. But what Prop 13 did is it included everything, including commercial property. So instead of being limited to residential property or residential property for people making below a certain amount, um, the Bank of America building and the Salesforce Tower and the Transamerica Pyramid in San Francisco have the same Prop 13 protection that I have on my 500-square-foot condo where I live in San Francisco. Uh, and so that, it, it, it was sold as being something much more narrow than what it really is. So there is an effort underway, and it has qualified for the November 2020 ballot constitutional amendment to limit Prop 13 to residential property, to take commercial out entirely. And I support that. Um, it will, uh, um, it's, it's going to be a huge fight. I don't know if it's going to pass. The business community will probably spend $100 million against it. Um, it will uh, ultimately generate about 10 or $11 billion a year in additional revenue. Half of that will go to uh, public education. Um, so that, I, I think, is important. Um, however, when it comes to housing, Prop 13 is extremely anti-housing because it makes housing not financially viable for cities because when you build housing, people living there consume all sorts of public services ranging from schools to roads to libraries to everything else, um, but you have capped property taxes that end up really effectively diminishing over time because you can only raise it by 2% uh, per year. Uh, and so uh, cities have an incentive to, to favor commercial development over residential because with commercial, you get the cap property taxes, but you can also get sales tax or hotel tax or business tax, et cetera. Um, the split role will have benefits, but the downside is the split role will make um, Prop 13 even more anti-housing. Because now, if commercial property are no longer capped by Prop 13, when you build commercial property, a city gets uncapped property taxes plus sales tax or hotel tax or business tax. And if you do residential, all you get is capped property tax. So it'll make the disparity, it'll make commercial much more lucrative. And so one, one of my colleagues who represents, uh, a senator who represents part of the Inland Empire, she was talking about um, uh, one particular city in her district where they are, are, are just welcoming in every conceivable fast food restaurant, um, you know, chain store, and under and because they know they get all that tax revenue from that, and they don't build any housing because it's not financially lucrative for them. Uh, so we have to figure out a more fundamental shift in our tax system to make housing uh, uh, to to uh, to incentivize housing. Because right now we're doing the opposite. Thank you, Juan. And I have a follow-up question or an add-on question to that. Uh, I just read, I guess a few days ago, or maybe last week, Google, and I know they have offices in your district. They're not based there, but they have offices. Just announced it would give $1 billion to build housing in the Bay Area. I'm not sure if it's on just the property that they own or just $1 billion, but um, I, I guess uh, the governor said, thank you, Google. And um, I just thought that was an interesting question. Like, um, there's a lot of uh, discussion about how these companies, Google, Facebook, maybe had a big hand in creating this 
housing crisis, um, and now Google is like, here's our way to to make amends or at least alleviate the situation. A uh, billion dollars is that enough to do anything? What should be the what? Do, what do you think about this? What should the private sector's role in a housing crisis be if their offices are located in the area that's affected? I mean. I mean, everyone has to be part of the solution, and, and I think it was great that Google is making this commitment. I think you know it's great when uh, businesses, you know, give back to their um, communities. That's very important. Uh, but I, what I will say is, number one, uh, in the Bay Area, people love to blame tech for all of our housing problems, uh, and I, I think, to me, I think it's misdirected. Uh, Google and Facebook and Salesforce, et cetera, did not cause the housing crisis. They did not uh, force us to um, down zone and not zone for enough housing. They didn't force us to take 10 years to approve projects. They didn't force us to do any of these things. We did that as a community. We made those decisions as a community, as a democracy. And that is what has caused the housing crisis. And the fact that employers are growing and hiring and you know doing what most people want, creating jobs and attracting, attracting economic opportunity, to say that that's the cause of the housing crisis, I just think, I think personally it's uh, misdirected. Um, and I'm all in favor of, you know, Microsoft is doing it in the Seattle area. I'm all in favor of, companies making big investments in housing, right? Kaiser's doing it in the East Bay. But that is not going to solve our crisis. There, there's not enough money that these companies can donate to solve the crisis without a huge reform by our government. And we ultimately have to change the zoning and streamline approvals and invest public money in, uh, in affordable housing. And if you look at Google, it's a huge investment by a company, a billion dollars. A, bil a billion dollars for, we, government can do so much more than a billion dollars, right? If you look at what the state of California has. So we, we can dwarf what these companies can do as a state. The question is, do we choose to do it? Do we choose to change the zoning? Do we choose to make things move faster? So I, what I don't want is for people to say, oh good, let's just hold these companies accountable, get them to pay more money, and they'll solve it. They're not going to solve it for us. Only we can solve it for ourselves. Next question at the mic. Thank you so much for being here. I have really appreciated this uh, discussion on uh, the housing issues that have gotten a lot of press recently. Um, for good reason. And uh, as you mentioned, um, there are a number of other issues that you also do quite a bit of work on. I know that you've taken some very active stances in San Francisco's K-12 public education system, something that we haven't heard a lot about tonight. And I was hoping that you could share a bit about your stances and um, what role you have as a state senator as opposed to um, part of the county board. Yeah, so when I was on the Board of Supervisors, we didn't we did not have a formal role because we had a separate school district, which at times was frustrating because they um, didn't always like to do what we wanted them to do, um, but they were their own entity. Uh, but when I was uh, in local government, I you know did a, a lot of work trying to provide financial support for the schools. I was in the schools a lot. 
Um, sometimes we would disagree with the schools when they would make, when the school board would make certain decisions about, uh, like they got rid of eighth grade algebra one, and we pushed back against that. Uh, or advocating, to, we were, would advocate to change the school assignment system, which was a very, very difficult system for parents in uh, San Francisco. Um, in uh, the in the legislature, uh, you know, we we set the basic policy for uh, for public education in California and the the, election, the education code. Uh, you, you can't see this if you're listening to the podcast, but I'm extending my index and thumb far index finger and thumb as far away as they can be from each other and that's like uh, seven inches eight inches yeah so really <laughs> thick education code um and we also provide funding and we've in recent years been gradually increasing the funding for k-12 through uh, going beyond what we're constitutionally required to provide uh, because fundamentally our school system is underfunded teachers aren't paid enough uh, and we're not investing the way we should and we're trying to change that and actually i have a i have a follow-up question about that too uh san francisco and i guess a lot of issues that come out of there and it can be like a i guess a a lab for um what the rest of california should do so obviously homelessness and i think uh there's always a lot of uh, activity lately about this navigation center in San Francisco. So for what's been getting a lot of attention to the media is they want to build a, uh, a center for, uh, uh, for sheltering the homeless on the Embarcadero. And a lot of locals who live in that area are really fighting back. And I think today or yesterday there was a, uh, a judge uh, rule that it can move forward, but the residents are saying we're going to sue. Uh, so it's really a very contentious issue. I was just wondering, you know, following this this situation with this navigation center in San Francisco, what's your what's your take on that? And um, you know, what in San Francisco can be used as lessons for the rest of the state to follow or not follow? Um. Yes, yeah, so the Navigation Center, I like to call it a Homeless Shelter 2.0. It's a more modern, better version of uh, an emergency homeless shelter where you can bring an entire encampment off the streets together. Uh, people can stay with their boyfriend or girlfriend. Uh, people can have their, their pet with them. Uh, people can bring all of their items with them because traditional homeless shelters have such strict rules that a lot of homeless people don't want to go there. Um, so it's a really good model, and we're trying to expand them around San Francisco. Uh, and so uh, the mayor proposed putting a, a navigation center on the Embarcadero. There were neighbors there who have fought it like crazy. It was very, very contentious. I give the mayor... Uh, a lot of credit and now the Board of Supervisors which unanimously I think you know rejected the appeal uh, the CEQA appeal yesterday um, and I support this navigation center and it's not surprising that you know you're gonna get pushback by neighbors anytime you try to make change in their neighborhood whether it's putting new housing there um, putting uh, homeless services there whatever the case may be uh, and we're uh, and the governor Newsom is and we just passed it in the budget a significant new investment in emergency shelter in California because there are big parts of the state that really have no shelter beds or very few shelter beds 
and we need to change that. But you can put all the money in the world in, and if each of these projects gets held up by years of litigation, it's not going to do much good. And so um, we have, uh, I had a bill this year that uh, Senator Portantino also killed uh, to uh, streamline the approval of these um, homeless shelters and navigation centers. Uh, but we are, uh, we're going to get that passed one way or the other, um, mark my words, and then we'll see these uh, homeless facilities going up faster. Next question, the mic. Hi, uh, there's been a lot of attention tonight to housing policy, which makes a lot of sense given the climate in California, but you also mentioned that you felt like you had a mandate to sort of advance the agenda for the LGBTQ community. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your sort of goals legislatively for that. And your name also shows up a lot in the gender equity space around work equity issues, sexual harassment, and that's another issue that I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about kind of your goals and what you see, you know, as someone from a district that can push the envelope, you know, what you'd like to do in that regard. Great. Um, yes. Uh, so we, I think one of the things that we've been doing for a number of years now is to try to uh, increase equity, gender equity in the workplace. And so I'm, uh, I have legislation this year which I also had last year, but uh, Governor Brown vetoed it last year, so we're trying again. It's a great thing about transitioning to a new governor. You can tr tr take another run at it. Um, and uh, Especially when he uh, yeah. lives in the area that you represent, yes. or lived to. Uh, and this legislation will um, require employers to provide uh, um, lactation space for uh, new mothers, uh, as opposed to forcing them to um, lactate uh, in place that's not very sanitary or, or, or private. Um, and so we've also been doing a lot of work around uh, expanding paid parental leave. Um, so uh, a lot of good work uh, in that area. And for the for LGBT community, I think there are a few focuses. Uh, one is on the needs of uh, LGBT uh, youth uh, who are at increased risk of bullying and suicide and um, homelessness, almost almost half of homeless youth are LGBT. Um, and so we've done a lot of work to try to um, support and protect these kids. Um, we've been doing work around the needs of LGBT seniors who have very unique needs because they're less likely to have adult children to help care for them. Uh, they're more likely to have lost a lot of their social network during the worst of the AIDS crisis, uh, and they need help. Uh, especially those who are going into long-term care. So we've done a lot of uh, work to try to protect their rights. Um, we also, uh, uh, the LGBT community is still very criminalized in California, even in 2019. Uh, so I authored legislation two years ago to repeal um, our HIV criminalization laws, which were targeting people living with HIV. Uh, this year, I'm doing some work. I have a bill to um, try to end some discrimination on the sex offender registry, young LGBT people. We, we have a, and I get, this will be a whole separate topic of conversation, how we criminalize uh, um, teenagers who are having sex with each other. Teenagers have sex with each other. That's what happens in the human species. And, um, and we, we criminalize it. And we particularly criminalize young LGBT people who are having sex. Uh, and uh, put them on the sex offender registry in situations where straight people wouldn't 
go on. So we're trying to rectify that uh, inequity. And then we do a lot of work to try to really um, uh, support the transgender uh, community to allow, make sure that people can identify um, at, with their actual gender, not what society tells them they have to be. Uh, this year we're doing uh, legislation to protect uh, transgender prisoners to make sure that they are not classified as their birth gender, but as their actual gender identity. Uh, so there's a lot of work to do, but we're trying to do it one step at a time. Thank you. All right, we have one, this will be our last question at the mic. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Senator Weiner, for coming tonight. And thank you for being a champion of housing. And I have another housing question because I think it's fascinating. Um, it seems as if the entire debate about housing seems to revolve around building more housing. We need 2.5 to 3.5 million more units in California, which is perfectly reasonable. But from my observations, and I'm a planner from training and by profession, um, it seems as if we're not managing our existing housing stock very well. And when I say that, I mean, uh, when, I, when I was here during the Great Recession in 2013 in Sacramento, I noticed that, Wal that uh, Blackstone, a Wall Street company, bought up over 1,000 units here, and they're now the second largest landowner in the Sacramento County, which probably has effects on rents around here. Um, they were also the, one of the biggest contributors against Proposition 10, which was the rent control. Um, proposition last year. You see down in Southern California, Airbnb, a lot of Airbnb re, uh, listings and studies have shown that Airbnb is people buying Airbnb units for the purposes of using them for Airbnb raises property values by 14%. And also you see a lot of foreign investment from Canada and um, China up in the Bay Area buying units and not really using them as their primary residence. So I'm just wondering if in the state legislature, has there been any discussion or any initiatives about better managing our existing housing stocks so that you know, California um, housing can actually go to California residents? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a hard one. Yeah, um, yeah, there was a New York Times story about that. I'm not sure if you, anyone saw that a couple of days ago about how this is a nationwide thing, uh, investing investors buying houses. Yeah, so um, in terms of short-term rentals, um, Airbnb and other platforms, um, we have, uh, I think it's really important to have good regulation around that. In San Francisco, after years of fighting, we finally adopted rules and I think some pretty effective enforcement uh, mechanisms so that the number of Airbnb listings went down by 50% in San Francisco. Uh, and, and so I, I think having those kind of robust regulations where you say short-term rentals are not a problem um, in terms of people it's we short-term rental people should be allowed to engage in short-term rentals but n not at the cost of cannibalizing housing stock so we want to make sure we're not converting com units into that all they are short-term rentals if someone has a home that they live in and they want to rent out a room as a short-term rental or they want to rent out short-term rental when they go away um, we, that's, that's good and people can earn some income from their property. The problem is when the entire unit is only a short-term rental and it cannibalizes housing stock. And so uh, in San Francisco, I think we, we were able to crack down on that. You're never going to end it. You know, per, there's no such thing as perfect enforcement. But I, I think we really dramatically reduced it. Uh, and so I, I think 
more sh more cities are doing that and should uh, do that. Uh, in terms of the sort of more uh, owning housing as investment, um, whether it's foreign owners or people from out of state or uh, companies like Blackstone that just buy up large amounts, um, it, it, you're, you're right. There, there is like the sort of the commodification of, of, of housing as opposed to people just like owning their home. Um, and it's hard to to stop it. I mean, we could, I suppose, put a cap, you're not allowed to own more than X number of units. Uh, that becomes very challenging and, and it's unclear if that would be constitutional to do that. Um, what we can do is put strong renter protections in place. Say, fine, you wanna own a thousand single family homes and you wanna rent them out, you're gonna, there's gonna be renter protections uh, in these homes. Uh, and that's why I think Costa Hawkins, which is what Prop 10 was trying to repeal, should be reformed. Uh, and it's one thing to say, if you own a house or two houses, you know, leave you alone. But if someone's gonna own a large number of single family homes and become a mega landlord of single family homes, uh, there should be strong renter protections uh, in place. So I think that we need to allow cities to have more latitude there, uh, and I'm hoping that we can move in that direction. I know there's another version of Prop 10 that's circulating uh, that uh, maybe can pass. All right, last question, since we're running out of time, so many, but I, I think um, I was wondering when you get back from uh, Denmark, Copenhagen, and you enter the, the next uh, part of 2019, then sooner or later, 2020 will be here. What should we be what should we be looking out for? What do you think, what do you predict is going to be happening? Uh, the legislature will be focusing on what you will be focusing on and what do you uh, see happening in 2020? So just basically like, I guess, your crystal ball for what you'll be working on and what we, should, we as residents, voters, taxpayers should be keeping an eye on in the next, say, year and a half. Well, I think um, uh, housing and homelessness, I mean, it's number one and two issue in the in the state, and I think we're going to con see continued work. Um, I mean, if SB fifty, if we're not able to bring it back this year, um, we, you know, then we'll we'll be trying to move it next year. Uh, and the explosion of homelessness is just it's an abomination, and and we have a responsibility to take aggressive steps to help uh, people not have to live in their cars or in tents or on uh, in other places where people shouldn't be living. Um, so I think we'll see a continued emphasis on housing and homelessness. Um, I am hoping that we can really continue the momentum in reforming our criminal justice system. We've done quite a bit in the last number of years, uh, but there's so much more work to do. And it's easy to get burnout on criminal justice reform because you're constantly, you know, as legislators, um, in districts that are not San Francisco, casting vote after vote that can be perceived as weak on crime. Uh, and, uh, but we, we have to keep up uh, that momentum. Uh, and then, uh, you know, the work around uh, wildfires and forest management and the debate about where we should be building housing in terms of wildfire zones uh, and how do we stabilize um, our utilities um, so that they don't go bankrupt, while also modernizing the system and, and understanding that our old model of centralized monopoly utilities 
um, isn't working anymore, and we have to have a more distributed model um, of, of you know clean energy and solar and storage and so forth, uh, and have a more flexible uh, model. Uh, that's going to be, I think, a big issue this year, but also next year. So a lot of, a lot of issues to tackle. Well, I hope you have a very relaxing vacation, two-week vacation. Enjoy it because it sounds like when you come back, there's going to be a lot to tackle. But thank you again for your time and taking the time out of a busy schedule this evening. And thank you for everyone for coming to attend. Have a good night, everyone. Thank you. You've been listening to California Groundbreakers. Tonight's Groundbreaker Q&A with State Senator Scott Weiner was held on June 26th at Roostaller in Sacramento. Thanks to Senator Weiner and State Senate staffer Caitlin Voorhees for participating. To Roostaller owner J.E. Pano and manager Sierra Calso for hosting this event. And to our volunteers Brady Comerford, Nate Graham, and Michael Seltzer for making sure everything went smoothly. Also thanks to Caleb Clark of Kickstart Audio for recording and producing this podcast. And of course, thanks to you for listening. Find out when our next event is by going to our website, californiagroundbreakers.org.